Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we're talking about Deuteronomy 24 through Joshua 4, the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant and the conquest of Canaan. Hey guys, welcome to FNT Bible Talk. In this week's episode, we're going to cover Deuteronomy 24 through Joshua 4. And we're going to look into Moses' final moments with the people of God and Joshua taking over and leading the people into Canaan. So before we do, we want to recap last week's episode. So last week we talked about the laws that are found in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. We talked about the worship laws and how the Israelites' obedience to the worship law would show their love unto God. And within that was about giving and about the Sabbath and these sort of things and how that was an act of worship unto the Lord. We see about the leadership, uh, how leaders were supposed to act in that and how Moses spoke of a prophet that would come that would be in a sense greater than him or do even more than him. And that prophet was ultimately Jesus. And we specifically see the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is preaching there. And then we talk about the civil laws and how those civil laws were to reflect the character and nature of God in everyday life of the Jewish person and how that would glorify him to the nations around him. And so in this week's episode, what we want to do is we just want to dive right in and we're going to start in Deuteronomy 27, actually. And I want to read to us just a, a little bit of the beginning portion and set us up. So again, last week we went all the really the laws cover all the way up to 26. And so for 27, it's kind of the beginning of Moses' final statements to the people of Israel as he's getting ready to depart and they're getting ready to cross over. But in doing so, before he does, he, he gives a command to the people. And the command basically is this. Look, look, when you cross over the Jordan into the land the Lord is giving you, he tells them to set up large stones and cover them with plaster. He tells them that what they are to write on, the, on these stones is the words of the law that they have been given and that they are to set them up in a way that um, would remind them and um, as a memorial in a sense for them to see and that they continuously be in front of them. And so then he tells them in uh, 27 verse 5, it says, Build an altar of stones there to the Lord your God. Do not use any iron tool on them. Use uncut stones to build the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings to the Lord your God on it. There you you are to sacrifice fellowship offerings, peace offerings. Eat and rejoice in the presence of the Lord your God. I think this is a really powerful moment that I just want to bring out about Moses is that up until this point, Moses has been with these people. I think he's well aware that I've just given them so much of the law, over 600 commands essentially. And I know that they are supposed to do this. They are supposed to be this. They're supposed to follow these things, but they're not going to. I've been with them. I've seen these people. They're going to mess up. That is what they have done. And so it's like he tells them to go over there. When you get across, don't forget the law. Don't forget it. You are supposed to follow this thing. But set up an altar also. Because it's like he's saying, I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to fail. And have an altar in place where you can make peace offerings and burn offerings unto God. In a sense, where they can be made right because he knew they were going to break the law. And so as much as he wanted them to understand and to follow and go after the law, he also understood that they needed to have the altar in place because they were not going to faithfully obey this as they ought to. 
And so from there, what we see is Moses then goes into this big section where we read about the blessings and the curses of this covenant. There's one real big thing I want to do, I want to explain here, is that what Moses is talking about here is the Mosaic covenant. And so God has made a covenant with the people of Israel all the way back to Exodus 19, where we've looked into this, where God made the covenant there. And then he renewed this covenant multiple times. But up until this point... What they are under is they've been under the Mosaic Law, and they continue in this. And within the Mosaic Law was blessing and curses, okay? And so what dictated the blessing or the curses was essentially just the obedience of the people. Whether they obeyed, if they obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, there would be curses that were put upon them. But what what was before the Mosaic Law was the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is really important for us to understand because the Mosaic Law, according to Galatians did not replace the Abrahamic covenant. It did not mean that it nullified what the Abrahamic covenant was meant to be for the Jewish people either. So they still had this Abrahamic covenant, and then they made a covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so the Abrahamic covenant was simply this, is that God was going to bless them, or bless Abraham, and bless his descendants, so that they would be a nation, a blessing to all nations, right? And that they would be abundant. And so God never strays from them, okay? That God never nullified that covenant with the Mosaic covenant in any way. And so we have to remember when we're reading these blessings and curses, this is under the Mosaic covenant. This is under the covenant that they made with him on Mount Sinai. That look, you're going to receive blessing whether you obey or you're going to receive curses if you disobey. And so this is what the people were under. And it did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. So let me read to you just a few scriptures from the beginning. This is what he says about blessing. He says, if you faithfully obey, this is chapter 20, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, Blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of the cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And so this was God's ultimate desire was to bless these people. And if we remember all the way back to Genesis 12, that God's desire was to bless Abraham and to bless his descendants so that they could be a blessing to the nations. And I believe that's part of what's going on here also is that, look, God's saying, I want to bless you and you've made this covenant with me and I will pour out my blessings upon you. And when I do, ultimately, if Israel would obey and walk in obedience, the blessing that they would receive would be a blessing to all the nations around them. But... What it required was faithful obedience to the Lord. And I think this is a really powerful thought for us because God has always required obedience in every era of, of Christianity. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, God desires, doesn't desire obedience in, in the New Testament. He, he still requires obedience. But what's special about the obedience that we see in the New Testament is, is that Jesus was obedient. So let me explain what I mean by that. Let me actually read to you Ephesians 1 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, speaking of God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this is what the scripture is saying. Look, in, in the Mosaic covenant, this is how it went. You obeyed, you received blessing. 
in the new covenant that we have, God still desires for us to walk in obedience. God still desires for the people of God to walk in obedience. But obedience comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience is something that, that because now we have Christ in us, we can live obedient. Let me, and let me explain why. Because Jesus Christ himself was perfectly obedient to the Father in every aspect of his life. Everything the Father wanted, Jesus was obedient. Everything the Father told him to do, Jesus was obedient. And that's in, in, in many one of the many reasons why he was worthy. That's one of them of going to the cross. He was obedient even unto death. And the blessing that God would pour out on, upon his son because of his obedience to his father now we receive that blessing because of Jesus and because of his obedience. But also, Jesus' very obedience to the Father, we can now have that obedience in our lives. Now we can actually live a life of obedience where we receive blessing because Jesus himself lives inside of us. And Jesus himself is the one producing obedience in us. And so, old, new, God has always desired for his people to be obedient. But for us today, the obedience that is required to follow after God is given to us from Christ. And I think that's something we can celebrate and delight in, even in this moment to say, like, thank God that the, the blessings in my life are going are gonna to flow to me because of Christ's obedience, but also I'm going to walk in obedience because Christ was obedient and he lives in me. And so from understanding that, we have to understand these were the blessings that the people were going to receive. They were going to have these very things. And it's an interesting to note that many of this was the material blessings as far as the city, the farm, fruit, cattle. They would come in and go out. He promised to defeat their enemies. And even in verse 10, he says, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. They shall be afraid of you, right? It indicates this, or it's supposed to, it means this, is that the nation of Israel was to be a worldwide witness of God's grace. And they were supposed to demonstrate God's grace unto the whole world and the greatness of God. But if they walked in disobedience, again, which is under the Mosaic Covenant, everything that he promised to them, the opposite would happen to them. And essentially it says this in 28, 15 through 19. And the curse, is, the curse list is a lot longer. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You shall be cursed in the city, right? We just This is where the blessing was. You shall be cursed in the field. You shall be cursed your basket, your kneading bowl. You shall be cursed in the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, your herds, the young flock, when you come in and when you go out. And this is what's the curse. So it was like the opposite. If they lived in disobedience, right? But one of the awesome things, too, is that we see here is that even in this passage, and particularly verse 36 through 37, we see a glimpse about a king. Up until this point in the Bible, we've seen hints at Israel one day having a king. And I believe that God had always designed for Israel and for the nations to have a king. And ultimately, that king would be Jesus. But God also understood that the people would one day request a king, even though he did not tell them to. They would request a king. For, it happens in 1 Samuel. And that this king would lead them astray, or this king would cause issues. And this is what it says in verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, right? Your king, whom you set over you, whom you set over you, 
to a nation that neither you or nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So let me explain some things. Why I think I want to show you how we can see Christ in this this particular scripture right here. It's very beautiful. Is that in the Old Testament, you'll see it the more you go through the Bible. But in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel many times was judged by the king, what the king did. It's not simply that they were disjudged by individually by the king's sin alone, but the way the king lived usually and almost all the time dictated how the nation would go. When the king followed God, the nation followed God. When the king was idolatrous, the nation would fall into idolatry. And that was the story of Israel. Their king would cause them to either follow God or fall away. And one of the things about this in particular is when you think about the people of Israel that went into exile, it started off that the kings began to seek other gods and idolatry, and it pushed the people to follow those things, and so they were moved into exile. And this is what this prophesies about, essentially. This is what he's telling them. This is what's going to happen, because you're going to live under kings who are not perfect. Even David himself, right? When you think about when he did the census, when God told him not to, he did it anyway, in a sense. And, and when he did, Israel suffered for it. Now, when David was following God wholeheartedly and faithfully, the nation of Israel was blessed. And so, as the king would follow and love and serve God, the nation would be blessed. As the king would not follow and not serve God, the nation would endure many curses or challenges or difficulties and ultimately leading to exile. And what's really powerful about this is that, like I said in the beginning, I believe that God has always always planned for a king to come. Now, it wasn't like how it was supposed to be in 1 Samuel, but he's always planned a king to come, and that king was to be King Jesus. And King Jesus is the perfect king. And this which makes it so beautiful and unique in this section is that we can see Christ in this scripture. Really what this tells me is about Jesus. Okay, So if the nation of Israel would be blessed because the king would follow after God and therefore the people would start following after God, the nation would be blessed, right? And Jesus himself, like I said earlier, always followed the Father's will. And he always lived to please the Father. He lived to obey the Father, even obedience unto death on a cross, Philippians tells us. And because Jesus has been faithful to the Father and faithful to what everything the Father asked him to do, he obeyed in all things and all truths. Those that who are underneath Jesus or who have placed their faith and their devotion and their life to Christ now receive the blessings of Jesus because he's the king, right? He's the king and he's receiving blessings from the Father in that sense. And so his obedience has poured upon us blessings because we're in his kingdom. As the king goes, the people go. And as Jesus has gone, as Jesus has been faithful, and as Jesus has done the work, we now are going to seek after God. And one of the neat things, too, is the illustration is the fact that the king was the one who would lead the nation and, in a sense, teach the nation in many ways. I know the priest did that, but and Jesus is the perfect priest, too. So he fulfills all these roles in the Old Testament that we'll see more and more of. But Jesus was the perfect king. And, the, and many times what the king would do is, if, like I said, as the king went, the nation went. So as the king sought after God, and really you see it in Deuteronomy 17, where the king was really supposed to follow after God and the, and the law and all these things, and he was supposed to be the certain way. 
As the king did that, the nation would learn and walk in obedience to God. So as the king obeyed, the nation would start to obey the commands of God. And what's neat about this is as Jesus has perfectly obeyed the Father, so we too now begin to walk in obedience to the things of God. And it's because this, Jesus is the perfect king, and therefore he is the one who teaches us obedience. Jesus is the one that teaches me how to obey. Jesus is the one that teaches me how to live my life. Jesus is the one who teaches me how to walk in righteousness and holiness. It is not me that's able to do it, but it is Jesus in me. And because Jesus was the perfect king, and he has led me, and he's guided me, he is now teaching me every way I ought to live my life. We know that Jesus, the New Testament talks about Jesus, is the author and finisher, or the author and the source, or the pioneer of our faith, meaning he's the one who's directed it, he has started it, he's going to finish it, he's going to do it all. Jesus is the one who teaches me obedience. Jesus is the one who has allowed my life to receive blessing from the Father because all I've done is simply call on Him as Lord, repent of my sins, and place my faith in Him. And now I get to receive the blessing from this perfect King who has perfectly pleased the Father. So it's beautiful. And so even here you see like He's telling them, like you're going to have these kings that are going to lead you astray. But we don't have that type of king. The king we have is King Jesus. And our king will never lead us astray. He will lead us into obedience and he will lead us into blessing, unlike the kings of the Old Testament. And so moving forward from there, what we really see is the covenant is renewed. They reestablish it. They agree on it. This is Deuteronomy 29, 10 through 15. You see this reading of the scripture and he comes and they establish it with the people again. He even reminds them of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's really important because that's what something he continues to do. That is something that Moses would always allude back to is that God's faithfulness would always be alluded back to that Abrahamic covenant. And so from there, what we really see is in Deuteronomy 30, Moses begins to predict the rebellion, but yet the mercy of God. And he even does so again later on in his speech. But let me read it to you and I'll read Deuteronomy 31. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So he's like, look, I've been with you. You're going to get the curse. Because you're stiff-necked people, and you're sinful, and you're going to disobey. He says, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. God has allowed you to go to these nations because of your cur- because you've brought the curse upon yourself in disobedience. And return to the Lord your God, and you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. It is our, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your, your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And I think this is a really beautiful, beautiful passage here. Because what God is saying is like, it's like Moses understood these people were going to walk in disobedience. They were going to sin. But when they do, if they would call on the Lord and repent, God would restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. God would be merciful. And this is really, really amazing because it's the treaties of those days or the covenants of those days in the ancient Near East. They usually very, very rarely did they have anything like this. 
And yet but with God and with Yahweh, he had this almost like a clause of forgiveness that would offer when the covenant was broken would still offer forgiveness for them. This was a groundbreaking thing and covenants then were not written in such a way. And I believe a lot of this steams from the Abrahamic covenant that God had with Israel is that the reason why this heart was there is, look, I'm faithful to bring you back to this land, to give you this land, to do all these things, to be your God, to be your people, because of what I spoke to Abraham. And even though the curses would come upon you, if you would call upon me, I would be faithful to the covenant I made with you and with Abraham. And so the the book moves on from there with Deuteronomy 31 through 34. And this is kind of where it closes out and some different things take place. And I'm going to read two our, our set of scripture here and then we'll move to Joshua. But Deuteronomy 31 through 38 is really kind of Moses' final moments. And he says this, The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dis- dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Shihon and Og and the king of Amorites into their land. And when he destroyed them, and the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of them. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so these are, in a sense, Moses' final moments to tell them. And I love what he does because it's like he reaffirms and strengthens them in every way. I just The character of Moses is so powerful and beautiful because Moses, though he did not possess the promised land that he wanted so dearly in his life, he did everything in his power to make sure the people of God would, even though... In some sense, we would almost blame them for him not being able to enter. He never put the blame on them. He put it on himself, and he still desired for them to walk and to go in the promise of God. And so it's like he's reaffirming, encouraging, remember everything God did? He's going to do it again, and he's with you. So don't be afraid. And then he moves, in a sense, puts the leadership role into Joshua. And you see this again in verse 34, 9 or chapter 34, 9 through 12. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there was, and there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord set him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. And so the book of, of Deuteronomy comes to a close with Moses' death and Moses going up onto the mountain and speaking of how amazing of a, a prophet and a man that Moses was, but it also shifts from the leadership of Moses now to the leadership of Joshua and to remind the people, go forward and remember, do not be afraid nor dismayed. And it's actually a perfect transition into the book of Joshua because the very verses that end Deuteronomy are the, are the phrases and the words are picked up again in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the fulfillment of many of the promises that God spoke to Abraham as far as the land that he would give him. 
And it is the promises that the people of Israel would receive then. And so it's a really powerful book because it's not just a book about conquest, though the stories about conquest is in there. It is about the faithfulness of God to do what he said he would do many, many years before when Abraham was even living. We see in this book, the people of God come into the land of Canaan and they do so as an army. And and it's an army not just to conquer for themselves, but also to be an instrument in the hands of God to bring judgment to the nations of Canaan. And so one of the things about this book is some people read it and they they read the things that are in it and and some of it they feel like might be hard to uh, stomach in a sense. And when you read about some of the ways the Israelites were to act or, or the ways they act and different different things. But we have to remember going forward is that the people that they were going to war and to annihilate, that God called them and told them to do so, were not godly people. These were people who were in utter rebellion against God. And in fact, they were making sacrifices where they would burn their babies and their children alive to false gods. And so I believe that God has, God is a God of judgment, and He was using His people to bring judgment in this. So as you read these things, understand that we aren't to read about these people and pity them in the sense like they're good people. These were wicked, wicked, wicked people that God was going to bring judgment through His people. One of the awesome things about the book of Joshua also is that Joshua himself is a type of Christ. The The name Joshua in the Greek form, or the Greek form of Joshua, is Jesus. And it means Savior, you know, Savior and leader of his people. And so what we see in here is we're going to see some of the actions of Joshua be a picture or a type of Christ as we go through the book and how he leads them and how he guides them. But also the gift of the land in this is also another type of Christ that we'll see more so in the later parts of the chapters but it is this Jesus grants rest from our enemies, right? And so that's what the, the promised land was intended to be for the people of Israel here was a place of rest. The promised land was supposed to be a place where they would remove all the enemies, he would conquer it all, and then it'd be a place of rest in a kingdom that was beautiful and everything they want. And Jesus is that place of rest, or he grants rest from our enemies as we come into Christ. And so we're going to see several things of that sort. But the book of Joshua starts off in a way where it picks right up where Deuteronomy left off. We've even seen the same verbiage and and words that are used when God is speaking to Joshua. And I'll read to you a couple of scriptures here. And so verse 1, after the death of Moses, Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I'm giving you. And to the Israelites, I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. And verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Verse 9, Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And what we see is it's like the very words from Deuteronomy are now being picked up in Joshua, and it it is like, the exact transition. It transitions into the story, into what Joshua is all about. And so what we see is Joshua takes the leadership, he leads the people, 
he prepares the people. And the next thing he does is he sends spies into Jericho, which I think is really neat because the last time we saw spies in the biblical narrative is the story of the 12 spies, that two that had faith and that wanted to go and take the promised land, and the 10 that did not, and the 10 that caused issues. But these spies that are sent in actually come back with a good report in a sense. And it says this in chapter 2 of Joshua, and then the men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, the son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to him. And they told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in this land is also panicking because of us or fearful of us. They recognize God is with us. Unlike the people before who were afraid and could not do it, these people recognize, you know what? God is with us. And, they're, and the people are afraid of us because our God is great and people fear our God. From there, Joshua prepares the people to cross the Jordan River. In fact, he says this in verse 5. Joshua told the people, of chapter 3, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. And then he said to the priests, Carry the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and they went ahead. And the Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And it's really cool because God ultimately, what he does is he leads the people across the river or or the Jordan River and they go across. But in doing so, it's like a lot of the things that Moses did, Joshua is now doing. And so it's in a sense, it's not even though Joshua is an amazing man and Moses is it, it. We see clearly it is God who does it. It is God who is glorious. It is God who is mighty. And so Joshua leads them across. And when he does so, he does the very thing Moses told them to do. They put up the memorial stones. They set everything up as they're told. They read, they make the law. And it says this in chapter 4, verse 19. And then the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and camped at Gilgal and on the eastern limits of Jericho. And then Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. And it's powerful because it's just God displaying his power. And that's what Joshua says. Essentially, this is done so that all will know that the Lord's hand is mighty. The Lord's hand is mighty. God does these miraculous and powerful things so that he can show his might. And so I know I skipped over the Rahab story because we're going to come back to it in next week's episode because it kind of fulfills itself a little bit more after this in chapter 6. But what this does set us up for in chapter 4 is that the rest of the book is really about God demonstrating or there's a lot of things the book's about, but one of the things the book is about is God demonstrating his mighty hand among the nations and setting up the people and showing his faithfulness to the promise that he made to uh, Abraham long, long ago about Canaan. I hope this episode blessed you. I hope it was an encouragement. I hope it challenged you and spoke to you in some way. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.